I am the man that has seen affliction by the rod of God's wrath. I remember my affliction and my wandering. The bitterness and the gall, I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Welcome to the Broken Book Podcast. We're your hosts, Amanda and Sam. And we're ready again this week to appreciate, dissect, criticize, defend, and generally nerd out about the Bible. On January 27th, the president issued an executive order banning travel from seven Muslim-majority nations, notably stopping refugee resettlement from Syria and Iraq. Our government has chosen our safety over the livelihood of refugees which translates as, well, we've decided that our lives matter more than theirs. Why, why do we do this? Well, it's, it's a cultural choice on a cultural level. Our government has chosen to listen to the stories and narratives we're familiar with and have silenced the narratives of the refugees, which, which makes total sense. Of course, that's what we're going to do because our media Basically, all of our entertainment is about the desperate heartache and struggle of the white middle class and upper class. These are the conflicts we're trained to care about. What we see in our sitcoms, those are the stories that really matter. But there is one huge counterexample, one dominant, praised, beloved piece of media, which still shows another side which still represents the refugee narrative. And of course, that's the Bible. Christianity does not make sense without the refugee narrative. Any logic or consistency or essence that can be found in scripture only works within the context of refugee experience. If we lose the refugee narrative, then we have lost our religion. Why? Because, because the Bible is a refugee document. Virtually all of the Old Testament, the Hebrew scripture, is either written by refugees, is about refugees, or is an attempt by a resettled refugee community to reclaim their identity. That's what, that's what the Bible is. Without that, there is no Bible. It all goes back to the Babylonian exile, first in 598 BCE and later in 587 BCE. The Babylonian Empire carted off roughly one-third of the population of Judah into exile. After that, the Babylonians and the Edomites divided up the remaining land in Judah, forcing the local citizens out of their own homes making them refugees in their own country. This is so important and so central to the Bible because basically the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, is written in response to the exile. For starters, there is no Bible without the refugees because that's why there was a transfer from the older oral traditions into written traditions. Now, before the exile, there were definitely scrolls. People kept track of psalms and prophecies and stories, but they were just scrolls. 
They were just documents. After the exile, there was this need to preserve the stories and laws of the culture. Why? Well, because before the exile, you have these kings, you have the temple, you have priests. It was easier to experience the religion and encounter God because it surrounded you. But the Babylonians destroyed all of that culture. So to encounter God, you had to look back into the past, into the stories and into the traditions, which is why these texts, these documents become elevated into sacred scripture. And we see this process begin in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, where the scribes start reading from the Torah and other sacred texts to huge groups of refugees who are trying to resettle in their native land. This is a reclamation of the Israelite and Judean identity after the Babylonians had destroyed it. And this reclamation of identity was incredibly successful because these texts are still considered sacred scriptures today. One of the most prominent of these texts is Deuteronomistic history. That's the books of Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. It's the story of Israel and Judah. This is where we get King David. This is where we get Solomon. This is where we get Elijah. This is where we get a description of the exile happening in the first place. And it is written by people in exile from the perspective of being in exile. And that's why these stories are full of shame and loss. Heroes like King David hardly come off as heroic at all. There's very little hope presented because the history of this refugee community didn't turn out to be particularly hopeful. Unfortunately, like when we have modern churches analyzing and examining these stories, we have almost completely lost this context. So we have to present pretty thuggish people like David as if they were just normal bomb-the-line heroes when the Bible itself presents them as noble failures. But after the exile and after the communities resettled, we have Chronicles, which is kind of a re-edit of Deuteronomistic history, which rediscovers a more heroic, more proud version of the same story. And again, this is an example of refugees reclaiming their past, reestablishing their religion after it was challenged and ultimately reaffirmed. Now, so many of the great prophets, who were such great philosophers of the time, are also directly responding to the exile. Jeremiah was preparing the refugees and advocating for their safety. Jeremiah saw the exile happening decades in advance, and he tried to encourage the Judean authorities to do something, anything to try to avoid it, and the Judean authorities didn't listen, they threw him into a well, and Judean authorities tried to cozy up to the wrong foreign nations, and in the end, Jeremiah was absolutely right. And towards the end of his career, Jeremiah encouraged the people going into exile to try to build solid, safe communities and try to form connections with their new neighbors. Now, Ezekiel was a leader in the first wave of exile in, in 598, and he authored harsh truths and strong hope. 
Uh, and most importantly, just the basic notion that God can't be mobile. God doesn't just sit in the temple. That means God can be there for the refugees. Ezekiel alters the metaphysics of God so God could be present in refugee camps. And, and finally, by the end of the exile, we get to Isaiah, 2nd Isaiah, presents the joy and release that comes from hope. It's over. We can come home now. The Babylonian exile came to an end while 2nd Isaiah was prophesying, so his hope and comfort was authentic and immediate. It was happening to him right then. It was lived experience. God seemed much kinder now. Salvation was in play again, and it wasn't just another endless round of judgment and hardship. But there's a catch. Judean salvation came through the Persian Emperor Cyrus, and he was a foreigner. Cyrus, Isaiah declares that Cyrus is a Hebrew messiah, a symbol of God on earth, even though Cyrus is Persian. And this so contradicts, this is so blasphemous to the earlier pre-exilic nationalism. And this forces Isaiah to draft in a very different, very visionary philosophy. For Isaiah, God is actively in relationship with every single person in the world and with the entire world. God's no longer local. For Isaiah, Israel is to serve other nations. Israel's still special. Israel still stands for something. Israel is still God's people, but what it means to be God's people isn't to take over everyone else. It's to help everyone else, to be a light to other nations. For Isaiah, forgiveness is at the center of God's justice. So while earlier prophets would praise God for killing bad people all the time, Isaiah would praise God for forgiving them and giving them another chance. For Isaiah, the most despised, rejected people are at the center of heaven. Isaiah describes this suffering servant, this pathetic schlub of a person who everyone mocks and everyone makes fun of, and he just dies and he isn't respected. But God sees the suffering servant and the suffering servant sits at the right hand of God. All of these traits are now so at the center of positive, good religion in the West. Second Isaiah is one of the beating hearts of Abrahamic religion. And if you look at all these things that Isaiah believes, they are all refugee virtues, and they are all still refugee virtues in the modern times. Like, okay, so God's actively in relationship with everyone across the world. That is uniquely relevant to people who are no longer living in their own land. God needs to interact with everyone because refugees are now everywhere. If God is going to have a relationship in their lives, God can't be limited by geographic boundaries. Isaiah says they need to serve other nations and other peoples. Well, the refugees no longer have a nation. So if they're going to have any point or purpose or service or goodness in the world, it's going to be towards other nations. There are no other options. So you have to find a form of charity and praise and justice that doesn't just apply to Israelites. 
So Isaiah's claim that forgiveness is at the center of God's justice. Well, back back in the early days, it was easy. You could just say, oh, good people get rewarded. Bad people get damned. But if your nation's destroyed, if everyone's been hurt, you can't spend your entire life and your entire nation's life thinking of yourself as the bad guys. I mean, some books of the Bible try to do that. Some books of the Bible are just incredibly self-loathing, but that can't last. Eventually, society is going to start rebuilding. These refugees are going to be creating new communities, and they need to find ways of conceiving of justice that isn't all retributive. It's not all punishment and rewards. You need to have grace in there somewhere in order to have a functioning government, a functioning universe. And that's why these most despised, rejected people have to be at the center of heaven, because otherwise... What do you even say to God if you're a refugee? If you're the lowest of the low, if you have nothing, if everything you loved and cared about is gone, if someone like that finds God, they're going to have to find it as a suffering servant. The Babylonian exile was awful. Lots of people died. Lots of people lost everything they had. But this refugee culture was able to reform and reformulate morality in a way that still has a massively positive impact on people across the world. They managed to become leaders in philosophy and theology, despite everything. When we proclaim grace-based, social justice-based, service-based, goodness-based religion, we're proclaiming refugee religion. When we see God everywhere in everyone, that's refugee religion. When we pray to Jesus, to the suffering servant incarnate, that's refugee religion. And you know, it's so easy, such an easy mistake for us progressive privileged folks to just just pity underprivileged people. We have so much They have so little, so we should give good stuff to them. We can be their benefactors. We can be nice to them. No, God's preferential treatment of the poor goes way, 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 way beyond that. We're not supposed to help the outcasts, the widows, the orphans, the refugees, the sinners. We should be led by them. They are the people who teach us how to do religion. We are a refugee religion founded off of a refugee texts, so we damn well better find refugees and outcasts and widows and orphans and sinners and disabled people and LGBTQIA people and depressed people and harmed people and hurt people. And they shouldn't just be accepted and forgiven and tolerated at church. They need to be giving sermons. They need to be singing songs. They should be front and center. They are our leaders. Because it's not about tolerance. It's about how to follow, how to put them in front. A suffering servant ideology is not about charity to broken people. It's about finding our godness in broken people. Remember, people who fit really, really, really well into an unjust society are probably doing something terribly wrong. We should all be broken. It is our duty to be broken. It is our duty not to just accept things the way they are with its perversions and intolerances. We have to be citizens of a better world. 
And church is where we start to do that. Church is where we can create little bastions, little tiny communities of heaven, even while the rest of the world still has a whole lot of problems. And for people who are valued less, for refugees, for queer people, for people of color, for people like me who are neuroatypical, church shouldn't be about being accepted and tolerated. It's not about it being okay for us to be us. It's about us showing how we are the image of God and us finding places where we can be leaders and we can use our experiences to inform the rest of the world. And of course, part of that is finding the Godness in the Bible. The, the Bible itself is homeless. It's, it's taken out of its historical context. It's used as an excuse to breed fear and nationalism and distrust. And if that fake Bible, the non-refugee Bible, still, if we still see that as a real Bible, then just more people are going to get killed and more people are going to get hurt. So that's a big reason why I'm doing this podcast is to try to elevate a healthy biblical heritage that we can turn to so we can move past all the filth. Second Isaiah said that the suffering servants the refugees would be a light to nations. Every time we look up to the Bible, we fulfill that prophecy. We choose to value the refugee narrative as the word of God, as a narrative that transcends past other narratives. And if we corrupt that narrative, we are despising and rejecting the suffering servant. But all bad things must come to an end. and The exile was over. Many Jews choose to return from Babylon. More chose to stay back because they'd formed their own communities and families, but a lot of them resettled in Jerusalem. And we have a new wave of biblical literature as the Judeans try to redefine and reaffirm their identity. For example, we have Haggai. He is focusing on rebuilding the temple, and he doesn't want that process to be corrupted by foreigners or Samaritans. It's going to be made by Judah for Judeans. And then we also have Zechariah, who also cares about the temple. In addition, he really wants there to be a new monarchy. He wants to restore that symbol of Judean prosperity. And he puts all of his hopes into this guy named Joshua. And Zechariah is kind of concerned because every year... The Judeans are still mourning everything that happened in the exile. They're still having these times of fasts. And Zechariah's done with that. The old time of mourning is over, and now when we used to mourn, when we used to fast, now we celebrate because God has liberated us. Essentially, Zechariah is saying it's time to move on. We're back. Let's stop thinking of ourselves as refugees. And... That makes Zechariah a really interesting example of a failed prophet. Why? Because Joshua does not become a king. The temple eventually gets torn down again. And to this day, Judeans continue to mourn and fast the exile. In fact, they have consciously made the choice not to stop thinking of themselves as refugees. Zechariah and Haggai are deeply conservative thinkers. They're trying to move theology back to where it was before the exile. They're trying to reestablish this sense of extreme national pride. But I think they are also healthy voices 
along with people like Ezra and Nehemiah, along with the books of First and Second Chronicles, because, well, you gotta have pride. If everything like this has happened, if you no longer really have an independent nation, if you've been refugees, it's okay to cling to your past because everyone's trying to erase it. And I think this is very relevant when it comes to modern-day refugee communities, where is our temptation to always modernize and Americanize and liberalize everyone who comes in here. That's the American melting pot, where we erase people's pasts and give them an American identity. And that's not what Haggai or Zechariah would ever recommend. They're going to stick to their scriptures. They're going to stick to their ceremonies. And as I keep on saying, to their credit, they succeeded. That's why there is still a Judeo-Christian tradition is because of them. All that being said, there are also kind of countercultural, progressive voices that come around the same time. For example, Jonah's, basically the purpose of the book of Jonah is to make fun of people like Ezra and Nehemiah. Jonah instead of trying to go back into the earlier past, is continuing Second Isaiah's process of deconstruction and trying to figure out how to create a conception of God who cares about everyone, who is trying to save and forgive the entire planet. And Job goes a step further than Jonah. The book of Job shows that the old pre-exilic judgment-based conception of God, the self-shaming that came along with it, was truly unhealthy and unreasonable. Job is still written within the confines of the Judean tradition, but it uses uniquely Judean arguments to undermine, critique, and attack the old religious claims. And that brings to another important point, is that the voices of the Bible, these refugee voices, are very diverse because there is no model refugee. Some of what the people coming in are going to be saying, some they're going to be saying things that we really like that soothe our Americanized egos. Some will not. Some refugees are going to have very big disagreements with each other about how to interact with new countries. When refugees get resettled or even return home, they're going to disagree with what it means to be home. And that's okay. That's good. We're supposed to have some elements of diversity here. It's, it's funny. Diversity isn't a value that's talked about directly much in the Bible, but it's a value that's shown by the Bible. Because the people who chose to bring these books into a canon recognize the need to include both the Jonahs and the Nehemiahs, both the liberals and the conservatives. And that's really what makes it such a fun book to read, to be honest. And eventually more time passes, as time always does, and Judah is not quite an independent nation. It's still kind of a province of Persia, but it has a lot of self-rule. Really, the community stops being such a refugee community, but they never let go of that past. They never stop mourning, and all of their scripture harkens back to the experience of both the exodus and the exile, the experiences of being trapped in a foreign land. And we see a lot of this in the Torah. The Torah, the first five books, are really quite interesting because they're hard to place in history because they're cobbled together by different sources that span across hundreds and hundreds of years, some from the far past, some of them oral traditions going back even possibly before the creation of Israel. 
But most of it was written after the exile. Most of it is written long after the monarchy has been destroyed. And yet, the Torah is still a reflection of the refugee experience. And it's so weird, because all the refugee experiences are presented quite differently. Let's look at Genesis, for instance. Adam and Eve are exiled away from Eden because of their disobedience. Abraham is forced to leave his hometown, but that time it's because he has great faith. Lot escapes from Sodom and Gomorrah, but he does so begrudgingly, and his wife has a lot of doubt, and in the end, they are not model refugees, and that family goes in very bizarre, very dark, and very weird places. Um, Jacob has to flee from his homeland, but that's because of his own deviousness and dastardliness, and eventually his family and him have to reconcile. And finally, Joseph is sold into slavery into Egypt, but there he becomes a leader of the Egyptians, and he lets in his own family who betrayed him, along with refugees from across the known world. He opens up the gates of Egypt and let them in, and this is an act of forgiveness and grace towards the very people who first sold him into slavery. And we see this model again in some of the other later texts written in the Bible. Daniel vigorously and helpfully serves the kings of both Babylon and Persia. Esther actually becomes the queen of Persia, but when she does this, she's not abandoning her Jewish identity. She's fulfilling it. Because a Jewish identity is no longer about separating yourself from the foreigners. It's about being a guide and protecting people as much as you can from your position of power. Interestingly, in the intertestamental Jewish period, you know, the lots and lots of various prophecies and scrolls written in between the Old and New Testament, so many of those documents are written from the perspective of the exile, even though they weren't written during the exile. The authors choose to use past voices rather than present voices, because at that point, being in exile was weirdly almost a definitive way of being a Judean. Those were the ironic countercultural glory years of Israel, back when there wasn't in Israel. So I know I'm just hammering home this point over and over and over and over again, but yes, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scripture, is a refugee document. And I'm going to ask an annoying hypothetical question. What does the Old Testament look like without the refugee narrative? Well, it doesn't look like anything because there is no Old Testament, there is no Hebrew Bible, but what, what, what happens if we ignore the refugee experience? Use some kind of demented postmodern deconstruction to slice the Bible outside of its own context. Well, what would Deuteronomistic history look like? It's no longer a tragedy, so it's just about superheroes who kill other people because they don't worship the same god. God is arbitrary and obsessed with making himself look good. This is the god I kind of talk about during our Gideon podcast. Everything is about vengeance and nationalism. And many of these problems are negated by reading the Deuteronomistic history in a refugee context, because eventually Judeans recede vengeance, and their nationalism is a failed nationalism, and the entire text receives this extra layer of irony. 
And what's what's Genesis about without the refugee experience? Basically, the central message of Genesis becomes God makes the people God likes rich. If you take out all the experiences of people having to leave their homes, that's what you're left with. God likes Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph get really wealthy. That's it. And Exodus is about divine magic tricks. Oh, look, let's make the Red Sea disappear. Let's turn the water into blood. The prophets become intelligible poems about the future that say nothing about the present and past. By cutting out the refugee narrative, by deleting historical context, we would read the prophets as if they were only talking about the end times, when when, when they were actually describing their own lived experience, because their world was really coming to an end. It's not some weird, crazy, magical experience that will happen at the end of the world. It's what's going to happen in 587 BCE when the Babylonians destroy the temple. That's the end of the world. That's the eschaton. And that's really funny, actually, because that means we don't read the prophets literally enough. Because the prophets aren't just making up the end times, they're living it. Without the refugee narrative, Ruth is just about marital love. Jonah and Daniel are just cute Bible stories of animals. Job is an individualistic story about a perfect individualistic guy having a really, really bad day. And what's supposed to be is the narrative of a whole nation, indeed a whole of humanity coming to terms with the failure of old spiritual systems. The Psalms would describe a big, powerful, mighty nation that's better than everyone else, rather than hope for a lost country, hope for an ideal, hope for a better world. This is scripture without the refugee experience. And you know what it sounds like? It sounds a lot like a Donald Trump Bible. And I don't think that's a coincidence. And that's what you're finding in a lot of evangelical churches. Not all evangelical churches, but a lot of evangelical churches. It's strength and power worship. It's America worship. That's the husk of the Bible we're left with without the refugees. That's what Hebrew scripture looks like without any Jews. The authors of Hebrew scripture are victims of terrible violence. We ceremonially remember and repeat that violence when we read the Bible without context. And Christians should always remember that we share this book with the Jews. This is holy scripture for both of us. And the Old Testament is a very different document than the Hebrew scripture, the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, that we read the Old Testament within the context of the New Testament, while Jews read within the context of the Talmudic and Rabbinic traditions. And, we sh and Christians should be very careful not to negate or appropriate the Jewish biblical traditions. That's just another way we can ignore and silence refugee voices. Judaism continued as a refugee religion. In fact, most of the Talmud itself was written by the original exilic community still living as Jews in Babylon half a millennium later. Jewish intellectual and theological tradition emerges out of the reality that they're perpetual foreigners facing consistent persecution. 
but as a Christian, it is not my place to explain and deconstruct that tradition. But I will claim that the New Testament is also a refugee document. And it all comes down to the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, as presented in the New Testament, is a literal refugee. It goes back to the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus, Mary, and Joseph have to flee to Egypt to escape Herod's wrath. Now, a lot of modern scholars don't think this is historically accurate. It's an unlikely situation, and it's only mentioned once in the New Testament. And a lot of people think that Matthew put it in there because he was trying to connect Jesus's history with Jewish history. The Jews were, of course, sent into their first exile in Egypt, so Jesus, as the epitome of Jewishness, needs to have also gone into exile in Egypt. But still, that still says something, because that means that being a refugee is part of what makes Jesus, Jesus. The church wanted to see Jesus as a refugee. This was somehow fundamental to his identity as a Jew and as a Messiah. And perhaps, perhaps the historical Jesus did flee to Egypt. Perhaps not. But the Christian tradition is based on the biblical depiction of Jesus and not just the historical Christ. The Jesus we are asked to follow in the Bible is a refugee, and scripture does matter when it comes to finding our own spiritual identities. However, I think the historical Jesus is also a refugee of sorts. He is technically a citizen of two nations, Judah and the Roman Empire, and he couldn't fit into either of them. And eventually, he was murdered by the forces of empire. And... Overall, I think the New Testament universalizes the Judean refugee experience. We are not citizens of nation, people, factory countries. We are citizens of heaven. And the heaven of the New Testament is not up in the clouds. It's present here on earth in the person of Christ, in his body, the church, and in all people, and the Holy Spirit. Heaven is everywhere, but the universe does not directly resemble heaven. We create a Christian heaven community, and when we do that, we can no longer be full citizens of any earthly system. And it has to do with hierarchy. Back in those days, it was everything was about hierarchy. Now, of course, nowadays things are still massively about hierarchy and privilege, but back then it was even more explicit. You knew who your betters were. You had to let them eat first. You had to speak to them in the proper way. You had to acknowledge your inferiority. And it was all based on money and power, or alternatively, it might be based on some standard of ritual purity. You knew your place. But the Christian heaven is an equalizer. And this is emphasized in virtually every single book of the New Testament all are welcome and equal at the table. And as far as we can tell, the early church emphasized this trait more so than many of the biblical authors of the New Testament. While the biblical authors are trying to actually get the Christians to be less focused on equality because they don't want all the Christians to get killed by the Romans. But what was exciting, what made Christianity catch fire there in the first century, was that the slaves 
the women, the foreigners, the Jews, everyone ate together in equality. And that broke everything. That just broke everything that made Rome, Rome. You can't be a citizen of Rome. You are a refugee from Rome if you are a Christian. And the Christians were persecuted from, for this. Now, I think that talking about early Christian persecutions become a little bit trite. It's exaggerated and it's idealized, but it was real. And it's perhaps unfortunate that we no longer put ourselves into positions where our culture would see the need to persecute us. And that's, that's because Christianity was claimed by the empire. And then after that, after Constantine, Christianity was used to justify those same hierarchies Christianity used to deconstruct. And Christendom became the new kingdom of heaven. And then we stopped being refugees. And that's when the refugee context was lost in the Bible. So let's ask, how do we not fit in? Where does society despise us? Where do we feel like we can never be at home? Where are we never safe? That's where God is. That's where we can find fellowship in heaven. And let's ask for help from refugees and outcasts. They know these places well, and they are our guides. I am the man that has seen affliction by the rod of God's wrath. I remember my affliction and my wandering. The bitterness and the gall, I well remember them. And my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Why should the living complain when punished for their sins? Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven and say, We have sinned and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. You have covered yourself with anger and pursued us. You have slain without pity. You have covered yourself with clouds that no prayer can get through. You have made us scum and refuse among the nations. All our enemies have opened their mouths wide against us. We have suffered terror and pitfalls, ruin and destruction. Streams of tears flow from my eyes because my people are destroyed. My eyes will flow unceasingly without relief until the Lord looks down from heaven and sees.